NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. It's Monday, June 10th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I'm joined in the introduction and the outro today by our resident correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Indra. It's great to be here. So today's interview is on a topic uh, for which you're really the expert more so than me. Uh, and that is on biotechnology and how biology might be shaping the technological revolution. It's an interview with Susan Hockfield. Do you know who that is? Yeah. She's former president of MIT and an extraordinary developmental neuroscientist in her own right and just a really incredible person. Yes, I was really thrilled to have her here in our home studio. It was a, a real delight for me. And um, before she came, you told me to do something. Uh, you told me to take a selfie with her, which is always uncomfortable for me. But I did that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Why is it? Was it? Uh, was it? Uh, did you feel it was awkward to ask for a photo? Or no, I just I mean, I never know really how to do those things. But um, but yeah, it's a for good our memento. It's a nice memento listeners. of of the time you spent together. Kind of, it's like a it kind of caps off the you know the interview and it was it was. But we had um, a really interesting and relatively far ranging conversation. But a lot of it reminded me of the difference between you and me. So if you if you remember, um, you know, when we were both working scientists, I think one thing that characterized us uh, as as being different is the fact that I was generally the kind of person that poked holes in people's work. And you were generally the person who saw the you know, positive in, in whatever people were presenting. I'm definitely the glass half full kind of person. Obviously, I I think I can have some methodological rigor and some scientific criticism. So I don't think I fall for everything hook, line and sinker. But I'm a dreamer. I'm an idea person. There's no doubt. And this is type of book that uh, I love because it's about not the way the world is, but what the world could be in the future. And so I'm a techno-optimist. I'm excited for the future. So, But I, I think we're a good complement. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is one of the reasons why I thought you would really adore this book and uh, why I wish you could have been here for the interview too. Um, but, you know, we'll listen in on it in a second. Susan Hockfield's book is incredibly optimistic. She herself is an optimist. She sees the future as bright, despite the fact that we are facing... You know, potential catastrophic situations down the pike. Her book is called The Age of Living Machines, How Biology Will Build the Next Technology Revolution. Susan Hockfield, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's a delight to be here. So you were an unconventional choice for president and not because you happen to be a scientist who identifies as a woman. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> never going to use the term woman scientist or female scientist, but because you were a biologist. Yes. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be. You know, I often tell people when they ask me uh, what it was like to be the first woman president, I remind them that that was 
probably less disruptive to the Institute than being the first, first biologist as president. Uh, the Institute has an incredibly great history, strong history in technology and engineering. And in the uh, 1930s, they hired their president from Princeton, a physicist, Carl Taylor Compton, an enormously important figure, both at MIT and nationally. And um, that was a little bit disruptive because at the time, uh, physics and the physical sciences weren't that strong, but the governing body at MIT thought it was time for MIT to really step up its game in having uh, science activities that were at a level equivalent to the engineering activities. My appointment was not that disruptive, and um, it was surprising to me how surprising that part of my dossier was because the MIT Life Sciences have been extraordinarily productive. A number of Nobel Prizes to our faculty in biology and biologically oriented sciences. And, um, you know, I had always looked at MIT as kind of the epitome of American molecular biology. In fact, in the 1950s, MIT did something absolutely extraordinary. Um, MIT had a biology department that was like every other bi biology department, pretty broad. But the faculty became convinced that molecular biology was the future. So this is the early to mid-1950s. Remember, the Watson and Crick paper came out in 1953, so right at the outset of molecular biology. So the department decided that they were going to turn their attention exclusively to molecular biology. Hmm. And somehow they managed to jettison all of the faculty who were not going to be molecular biologists. But that decision positioned MIT to really take the lead in modern biology. With that kind of history, I thought the whole institute would understand the role of MIT in biology. Let's just say, um, I have had conversations with important people at MIT, even as recently as a few weeks ago, in which they've asked me, will there ever be any math in biology? <laughs> Therein lies the dilemma of a biologist uh, as president. So in, in your prologue, you describe beautifully sort of uh, what, what, I, what I took as one of the reasons why you decided to go into the life sciences rather than into you know, and, and some other form of engineering. And and you started out by talking about how as, as a young child, you would like take apart your mother's iron. Yes. <laughs> Which perhaps you didn't appreciate, but maybe not. Um, and that you quickly figured out how it works, but that living things were different. Exactly. Uh, my parents, I, I don't know, in retrospect, I don't know how they uh, put up with it, but I never experienced any kind of surprise or shall we say any kind of a discouragement in my it's it just came out of my my fingers I call it to, to take things apart and so I did take a lot of stuff apart um <laughs> my parents just didn't even seem to notice I don't know how that was possible when my mother's vacuum cleaner lay in parts you know around the living room I was not uh that committed to putting things back together it was just mostly figuring out how they worked but biological objects, I also dissected and um, took apart, and they just didn't make any more sense. So if you take an acorn that's just started to sprout, an oak tree, and you take off the outer tough shell, and you open it up, 
there's another beautiful structure inside, but it doesn't really tell you very much about what's going on. Very different for the iron. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say that I learned that much by taking apart my own watch, except that that mainspring is you know, wound up with a lot of force. And when you release it, it can throw stuff a great distance. Um, but I understood that if I could um, have taken it apart more slowly, I would have understood how a watch works. Not so for living things. And that was more a curiosity to me than a, um, a discomfort, but it was certainly something that was curious. And it ended up, you know, I discovered that I had a great passion for biology, for understanding how biology works. And it, it shouldn't surprise us that, you know, the second chapter in your book talks about nucleic acids, given your early experience as a scientist working at Cold Spring Harbor with James Watson. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that time and what it was like and sort of, you know, some of the discoveries that you guys made? Yeah. So um, one of the things that is um, uh, uh, kind of amusing to recall is my degrees in anatomy. So I mm -hmm. had learned uh, that I could understand function from structure the iron, the watch, the vacuum cleaner, and biology. And different people use different kinds of transformations to understand what they are studying. And for me, structure in the organization of any object, any organization, tells me a whole lot about how it works. So natural that I became an anatomist. And uh, my particular area of study was the brain. So I was a neuroanatomist. And in 1980, when I joined the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory, the molecular biology revolution had been making its way into various parts of the biological world, but hadn't really yet reached neurobiology. And uh, one of the more senior uh, leaders at Cold Spring Harbor uh, would from time to time scream at neurobiologists in his way and say, there isn't any biology in neurobiology. And I didn't really understood what he meant when he said it, but subsequently I do understand exactly what he meant. For him, biology was molecular biology and there wasn't any molecular biology in neurobiology or very little in the early eighties. But in joining uh, Cold Spring Harbor where there was one neurobiologist and a lot of molecular biologists, I hadn't realized that I had joined a new revolution in neuroscience that brought molecular biology and the techniques of molecular biology into understanding how the nervous system works, how it, how it develops, how it goes awry in disease. And it was enormously exciting to be in a group of, a pretty small group of pioneers that were beginning to use the tools of molecular biology to understand the brain. Yeah, and nowadays I still think that there are kind of two main um, tracks of neuroscientists. There are people who really feel that you don't need to go much beyond the synapse or you know beyond the single cell, and you can understand already so much. You know, we see synaptic changes with learning and memory. We see you know problems with protein misfolding causing Alzheimer's disease and you know other neurodegeneration. And then there are there are others like me who were trained in the cognitive neuroscience realm, where it was you know the cell is is where you start from, but really Really, it's about networks and it's about connectivity mm -hmm. across the brain. And you can't even think of a region in isolation. You have to think about, you know, how it affects the rest of the brain. And I wonder if that is true in other aspects of biology or is that kind of unique to neuroscience? And is, is there, I mean, part of the reason that I'm, that I think it continues to exist is because there's so much technical detail in each of those two 
levels of analysis that it's impossible for a single person to really have an in-depth knowledge in both, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, so is this specific to neuroscience? I don't know. I'll come back to that. But I think what you've touched on is something very interesting in terms of the organization of information and the organization of knowledge. Now, the brain is a remarkably intricate, beautifully structured uh, system. And if you approach it at any one of the different levels of resolution that you've described, there's an infinite number of puzzles that remain to be solved. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about simply psychology, let's just stay away from the brain entirely, but just <laughs> the, the science of behavior, you know, that could occupy hundreds, thousands of people for a lifetime. And then if you think about the tissue itself, the brain structure and the different parts of the brain, the spinal cord, the cerebellum, the cerebral cortex, each of which has its own function, you could study any one of those structures at a kind of gross level for a lifetime. And then the cells, and then the components of the cells, the synapses, you know, frankly, the intermediate filaments that give a nerve cell its structure. Each of these is infinite still in the problems yet to be solved. And truth be told, as we get what we believe to be closer and closer to a solution to a given problem, that only opens up new doors to puzzles that we have not even yet appreciated were there. So it's one of the joys of discovery. It's one of the joys of scholarship. It's uh, one of the joys of science, Mm -hmm. taking things apart (laughs) level (laughs) by level. Um, I would say that not it's not true just for neuroscience, an area where I've gotten increasingly involved over the last oh, couple of decades is in cancer. Mm-hmm. And cancer's complexity is also really quite astonishing. Um, I remember the day when cancer was a disease. We now know that cancer is many diseases. Cancer was defined, defined by tissue. So you had breast cancer or liver cancer or lung cancer. And we now know that That's not a useful way of describing disease because even within breast cancer, there are many different variants. One of the uh, challenges at this moment when miraculously we actually have treatments and cures for some kinds of cancer, Mm -hmm. the fact that other cancers still have evaded our attempts to control them only reflect the fact that there are many more variants of cancer, or what we used to call cancer, Mm -hmm. um, than we ever knew before. And so this idea of layer by layer complexity, you know, at different uh, levels of revolution, at different levels of resolution, you can appreciate uh, the diversity of any kind of structure, any kind of tissue. Um, Of course, I'm a neuroscientist, so I do feel that the brain is unusually complex and unusually beautiful in its structure. Do you ever wonder how dating apps shape our ideas of love and romance? Or whether technology has changed who we consider family? Or what the blockchain actually is and how it can revolutionize how we protect ourselves online? Then I have an exciting new podcast to share called You. It's hosted by writer and musician Claire L. Evans and brought to you by Okta. You explores how modern identity exists at the intersection of technology and humanity. One of my current favorite episodes is one about virtual reality. It's a topic we cover a lot here at Inquiring Minds, and Claire does a really great job of walking us through how virtual reality is changing what we think about when we think about consciousness. 
In each episode, Claire speaks with renowned experts in the fields of science, technology, art, philosophy, and design. Her provocative questions uncover deep insight into how tech is changing the way we see ourselves, each other, and the world. In the first season, you covers everything from the algorithm of our hearts to virtual reality, digital assistance, and how internet fame can become internet shame. Search for you by Okta, that's O-K-T-A, wherever you get your podcasts and start listening today. Okay, Inquiring Minds listeners, if you don't already know, Neil Stevenson, whom longtime listeners of Inquiring Minds will know is one of my favorite authors, has put out a new book. If you could live forever, if you could cheat death with science and money, death would not be pleased. New from Neil Stevenson, the number one New York Times bestselling author of Ream D, Seven Eves, and Cryptonomicon, comes the wildly inventive and entertaining science fiction thriller Fall or Dodge in Hell. This is the story of Richard Dodge Forthrast, a recurring character in a number of his novels. He's the gaming company multi-billionaire who signed on what may have been the wrong dotted line and finds himself trapped in an unpredictable technological afterlife. Fall or Dodge in Hell is a grand drama of analog and digital, man and machine, angels and demons, the finite and the eternal. In this exhilarating epic, Neil Stevenson raises profound existential questions and touches on the revolutionary breakthroughs that are transforming our future. People are comparing it to Paradise Lost by way of Philip K. Dick. They say, hell is other people, but it's also so much more. Want to live forever? Read Fall or Dodge in Hell by Neil Stevenson. Available now wherever wildly inventive books are sold. One of the things that, you know, you talk about in your book is this molecular medicine, which I think applies most directly to cancer, as, as you've described it. Um, and, you know, when I was growing up, there was like, you know, that people had kids had what they wanted to be when they grew up dreams. And it would be like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to cure cancer as if it's mm -hmm. one thing mm -hmm. to cure. And now we find ourselves, as you describe, in this position where there are a few cancers that we can cure or that we have cured. Um, but we've just, there, there are more that, you know, uh, still remain fatal or, or mm -hmm. devastating. So can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about what you see as the future of molecular medicine, um, whether or not it applies to cancer or other diseases and, and sort of what's in the, what's in the horizon in terms of how, as you talk about this idea of, um, living machines, how we might harness them to fix the problems that, that they're also causing. So let me back up a little bit and talk about living machines. Uh, this is a area that opened my eyes uh, after I arrived at MIT. I knew about biomedical engineering. One of the important innovations, initiatives that I'd helped develop at Yale when I was dean and then provost was a new department of biomedical engineering. And it wasn't novel in that it was biomedical engineering. What was novel is that it brought together individuals from the medical school campus with individuals from the Faculty of Arts and Sciences into a single department that crossed two schools. A structural issue, an anatomical <laughs> issue, if you will, uh, that we had figured out how to solve to bring people together who had common interests and common goals into an organization that would allow them to share their insights and develop their ideas together. Um, the number of faculty in our new Department of Biomedical Engineering at Yale, I don't remember the exact number, but it was less than 20. When I arrived at MIT, of course, coming from the outside, and as a biologist, uh, 
I had a lot to learn about the Institute, and I met with as many people as I could to learn as rapidly as I could what was uh, interesting, important, um, what the issues are, were that needed addressing. And among the first people I met was the Dean of Engineering, Tom McNanty, who became a, a great uh, guide. Uh, he reminded me early in the conversation that the School of Engineering at MIT had almost 400 faculty. Um, I kind of caught my breath uh, at that magnitude. And then as if it needed underscoring, he also reminded me that it was the largest school at MIT. Pay attention. <laughs> um, but then he told me something that was absolutely mind-blowing. He told me that a third of the faculty in the School of Engineering were then using biological components in their work. And I was familiar with the biomedical engineering part of it, so I suggested that that might have been the majority of those activities. And he said, absolutely not. Engineers are using biological parts to do all kinds of things. And that was the moment when this door opened into another world that I didn't yet know existed, where engineers who are always looking for new components, they're always looking for new materials to uh, address the tasks that they have or solve the problems that they've identified. But these engineers were using components from biology to build the machines they needed or to solve the problems that they were addressing. Absolutely fantastic. And in the book, I, I call out some of them. Um, one of my favorites is Professor Angela Belcher's uh, use of viruses to build batteries mm -hmm. and build them in ways that are far more sustainable. They're more environmentally um, kind. In, in a number of ways, and we can get back to that later. But, you know, you've asked about the world of, of biomedicine, and biomedicine is just exploding with examples of how combining engineering with biology is creating new kinds of tools, new kinds of diagnostics, new kinds of therapies that really wouldn't have been possible, um, you know, decades ago. So, one example. In thinking about cancer, and it is a, um, a daunting but wonderful kind of model disease because we've been successful just by using molecular biology to figure out what those genes are that cause cancer and in some cases figuring out how we can shut them off. Mm -hmm. Enormously successful um, for some diseases and at some points in time. But like some diseases, cancer progresses from an early stage where there are a small number of cells involved, and those cells are dividing aberrantly. They've lost the mechanism to control how many cells there are. You know, your liver doesn't continue to get bigger. Normally, your liver knows what size it's supposed to be, and it stops. Cancer doesn't know the bounds, the constraints of tissues. And uh, a cancer cell mass will grow, and eventually, uh, cells will leave that mass, move to other tissues, the cancer will metastasize. Now, the fact is that cancer can be treated much more effectively, and the chance of a cure is much higher if you detect it early rather than late. But detecting a very small mass of cells is very difficult. We've made enormous progress against cancer by having 
better diagnostic techniques than we've ever had before. Uh, certainly colonoscopy and mammography have reduced death from those diseases substantially, not perfectly, but we're still detecting disease pretty late. So another MIT colleague, Dr. Sankiti Bhatia, who's an MD, PhD, she's a biomedical engineer, and also a clinician, figured out how to use some of the tricks of biology with some of the tricks of engineering to develop a diagnostic that promises to detect cancer when it's about the tenth the size of our current best diagnostic techniques. But it is just the craziest, wildest, coolest kind of approach. Um, so let me describe it for you. Uh, nanoparticles are just very, very small particles. They can be made of any number of things, but the, the point is that they're small. So you can get them in places where uh, larger size uh, entities can't go. So she has nanoparticles and she has developed what she calls synthetic biomarkers. A biomarker is a biological signal of something, whether it's a signal of a disease or a signal of, of uh, you know, some, something that's happened to your body. A biomarker is a biological readout, which is, um, you know, kind of for, for many people, this is the gold standard. You want something that measures biology. So we don't have to rely on self-report. <laughs> right. Yeah, I feel kind of, you know, my back hurts today. Exactly. Uh, well, let's measure that, how much your back hurts. Mm -hmm. um, so um, she takes nanoparticles and decorates them with proteins, which are you know, biological molecules. But the fascinating thing about the complexity, we were talking about the complexity of the brain, complexity of any tissue, is that every tissue is who it is because it expresses its own set of molecules. Mm -hmm. One of the most fascinating questions in biology is how that's regulated. And among those molecules that are expressed in a tissue-specific way or a disease-specific way are proteins called enzymes. Enzymes are molecular scissors. Molecular scissors cut other proteins at specific sites, high specificity. Cancers make particular enzymes. And one of those enzymes is a particular cancer enzyme that cuts a protein at a particular place. So uh, Sangeeta decorates these nanoparticles with a little bit of a protein that contains the site that a cancer enzyme will cut. Hmm. So a nanoparticle with kind of a little fur ball with these little stalks of, of uh, proteins on it is injected, a lot, of, a lot of nanoparticles, not just one, and circulates through the body. And if you don't have cancer, it stays intact and eventually goes the way of other things in the body, you know, how we get rid of those. Um, <laughs> but if cancer is present, the enzymes, the cancer enzymes will clip the tips of these protein mm. stalks and release them. They're very small. They find their way into the blood. And then they have been designed specifically to be small enough so the kidney will see them as kidney waste and direct them into the urine. But particles have to be very small to go that pathway. The rest of the nanoparticle could never get through the kidney's filter into the urine. Urine has a very little protein of its own for kidney filtering reasons. And so anything that does appear there appears against a, 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 a wonderful background. There's no protein. So if these little snippets of protein are there, you can detect them. Now, 
this is good for any number of reasons. I mean, this you know, Sangeet is brilliant and it reflects any number of insights. But one thing is that if you want to diagnose cancer, you know, I go in every year for my mammogram. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't go in every year for very many diagnostic tests because they're a pain in the neck to go in for, right? Mm -hmm. And they're expensive. And as I said earlier, the resolution is just frankly not that good. But an over-the-counter urine test for, let's just say, pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. Inexpensive, highly accurate. You could do it once a month mm -hmm. or at least once a year. So uh, Sankita's idea is that annually or whatever frequency is right for you, you would have this urine test. And if these little particles from the, that were uh, produced by these cancer enzymes were in the urine, you would know that you had cancer. It's amazing. It's, it's like, yeah, it's a urine test for cancer. I mean, yeah. cheap, accurate. And, and she can, uh, you know, obviously, you know, one, one protein might not be enough. She can multiplex them and she can design them for whatever protein, whatever enzyme you hmm. would like. You know, I'm sure it's not just unique to the Bay Area, but there's a lot of talk about Elizabeth Holmes and, yeah. and her her failed test. <clears throat> but this sounds like it's sort of the real, uh, real deal. Well, um, Sankita has published in Nature and Science <laughs> and all the other <laughs> big journals. And that is, of course, you know, one of one of our uh, great fears as science advocates that um, someone's going to scam the system. But I would say as great a tragedy as that is, as the um, Elizabeth Holmes uh, saga is, uh, the great thing about science is it's never perfect. Um, but if you and I disagree about some scientific finding, we'll do an experiment mm -hmm. and let nature tell us who's right. That's right. I mean, what, you know, one of my favorite you know, quotes is that you know, science will always win because it works. You know, and it, even if it's wrong itself, it'll correct. Yeah, it, it corrects. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the other problem for, for many people. They want science to be absolutely right. Yeah. We're only as right as we can be right now. Yeah. But there's so much more to be learned. And as we learn more, it may be that what we know today is not good enough. But what we know today is enough to build a cell phone that works pretty reliably. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of, um, you know, what we know today is that uh, vaccines work to prevent disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we'll get better. At it. I'm sure we'll get better at it, but uh, we've done pretty well relying on the science as it is known thus far. So speaking of vaccines, you know, speaking about things that work and cell phones, which you know, mine now seems to be at that two-year mark where its battery keeps running low. Um, tell us about this innovation of using viruses to create batteries. You know, this is such a great story, and I should say that the book is written for a general audience mm -hmm. um, because I think these stories are so fantastic. And this is a marvelous story about a person as well as a project. So um, Angie Belcher, Professor Angela Belcher, did her uh, undergraduate and graduate work at UC Santa Barbara. And she used to love walking along the beach. Who doesn't? But the thing she loved most about walking along the beach was abalone shells. And she would pick them up and admire them. And, you know, you've seen them. They're kind of rough on the outside. They're strong. They're lightweight. But, you know, not the most beautiful shell you could ever find. But the thing that fascinated Angie was that abalone, sea snails, live in the ocean built shells, built their shells by gathering up the components of the shell from the ocean water and using a variety of techniques to build these amazingly strong shells. And then when the abalone dies, 
the shell goes back to the water, disintegrates into co its component parts to furnish the elements that the next abalone needs to build its shell. Hmm. So Angie thought about this and said, abalone can build this great technology and then have it go away without contaminating its, its environment, without polluting its environment. Why can't we do that? Why is it we build things? We end up leaving waste everywhere. And so she resolved to figure out how we could use nature's genius, which has become kind of a theme in the book, uh, to build the things we need more sustainably. Um, through a number of uh, experiments and uh, experiences, Angie determined that viruses, which normally bind organic materials, could be persuaded to bind inorganic materials like metals. Hmm. And that provided the opportunity to think about how viruses could build batteries. Long story short, she's achieved that. She uses a lab strain of viruses, benign, that we use in the lab hmm. to do all kinds of things, at least as biologists, but she's an engineer. And she's um, uh, modified viruses using techniques that rapidly evolve them, including gene engineering and simply selection for the properties that she wants and uh, has persuaded viruses to organize the components of cathodes and anodes, and she assembles them into batteries. Cool. But what's mostly most cool about this is that we have an enormous energy problem. You know, already we're using energy unsustainably. Uh, the climate is warming because of all the CO2 releasing. We can come back to why that's happening, but it's very important that we figure out how to use energy differently. We're anticipating that the world population will grow from just over seven and a half billion to over nine and a half billion by 2050. The estimate is that our energy needs will double. And um, frankly, we are just not going to get the energy uh, that we need using our current technologies. So, okay, alternative energies will save us. Solar, wind, who doesn't love solar and wind? But the fact is that solar and wind are intermittent. They're great energy sources when the sun's shining, when the wind is blowing. But if we can't figure out how to store that energy, those are not that useful technologies. They're not replacement technologies. So the rate limiting technology for many alternative energy technologies is storage, which is batteries. We build batteries now, but the process for making batteries is environmentally um, unappealing and unsustainable. It requires an enormous amount of heat, so you have to put a lot of energy in mm -hmm. to store energy. Mm -hmm. And beyond that, uh, the manufacturing process produces a lot of toxic byproducts, mm -hmm. not sustainable. Angie's viruses, however, build batteries at room temperature and without toxic byproducts. This would be an enormous, an enormous benefit. Now, I didn't, this was not true when I wrote the book, but I ran into Angie the other day in the hall telling her about the last time I had talked about her technology, which is like almost every day because I find it so fantastic and so promising. And she said, oh, but the batteries we're now building don't use lithium and don't use cobalt. So she has viruses that are making batteries that not only are made at room temperature without toxic byproducts, but also don't use the metals that we have come to realize are in short supply mm -hmm. and our methods for actually acquiring those metals are quite environmentally damaging too. So 
you know, Angie just is making leap by leap by leap into a world where energy storage will be sufficiently sustainable to replace effectively and economically our current use of fossil fuels. Uh, that's incredible. It's an incredible story. And, you know, you you start out by quoting Thomas Malthus and and how, you know, he, he sort of was saying that the end of the world is coming. Um, and then we figured out how to make more food. Uh, and so your book, you know, is very optimistic in the sense that it has this long view of, you know, all of these technologies could potentially solve some of the really big problems that we're now facing. So can you... Tell us a little bit about how you develop that optimistic view in the face of so much negativity, so much doomsday predictions that, you know, we hear all the time. Um, and if only one of them turns out to be true, you know, we're screwed. No, it's true. And there, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned. But, you know, there are always a lot of reasons to be concerned. And Thomas Malthus' treatise on population in 1798, he was a great demographer. He understood that it had happened before. The population growth rate was faster than agricultural productivity growth rate. And this is going to end in tears. And he went back and looked through history and he said, sure enough, population grows really fast. More people than there are resources. Uh, there's war, there's famine, there are epidemics. Population gets readjusted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. we go forward. Now, from time to time, and I would say in recent history, more frequently than not, the population dilemma is solved by technology. And I tend to be optimistic, but I think part of my optimism comes from being a scientist. The progress that we've made in coming up with new technologies that actually make our lives better, make our world better, are there for us to discover and deploy. And so I'm optimistic that we can find the technologies to get us out of the dilemmas of today. I'm optimistic about new battery technologies, whether they're Angie Belcher's or someone else's. I, my breath was taken away from when Volta invented the battery. He wasn't looking for a battery. He was just doing this kind of curiosity-driven science and produced something that became batteries. Um, you know, But from those first uh, battery primitives to today's battery, 200 years of very little evolution, and then all of a sudden, Dozens of new battery technologies being developed all kinds of places. We can, we can get out ahead of our energy storage dilemma. We can get out ahead of the dilemmas of continuing to rely on fossil fuels if we put our minds to it. For me, one of the, uh, I guess for me it feels recent, but perhaps not so recent, uh, examples of a technology burst that was inconceivable is what we and the Allies managed to do during World War II, or even better. In 1961, when President Kennedy announced that we were going to go to the moon with a man and bring him back, we had no idea what those technologies were going to be. Mm -hmm. There was nothing in hand that could say, we know how we're going to get to the moon. Hmm. And yet, over a period of eight years, all the components were brought together, an army of people was organized to accomplish that mission. I'm big on shared ambition. I'm big on having a shared purpose in terms of organizing people's hopes and dreams and work. And I grew up under the shadow of Sputnik. And, uh, but for me, it didn't feel like a dark, threatening shadow. It was the bright beacon of science and technology. Why was I taking things apart? Because somehow it was in the air. So with a shared ambition, a national or international ambition, 
to actually achieve what we need to achieve to have um, the technology to join us and also provide for our futures. Um, these are ambitions that don't just end with the astronauts who walk on the moon. Mm -hmm. There's a small army, actually a large army of men and women who made those technologies possible. And beyond that, a group of kids who were in first, second, third, you know, whatever grade, who understood the power of science and technology to build a better world. And we joined that force. And um, I think that we can do it again. Now, all these technologies have potential downsides and we have to always be vigilant uh, to guard against technologies being used for ill rather than for good. Such is the nature of technology. But we can't allow those risks to deter us from developing the technologies that really do promise to make all of our lives better, to cure more disease, to prevent more disease, and to give us the food, water, and energy that the global population will need when we get to 2050. So you took on a, a probably very difficult role as the head of MIT. Uh, this is, of course, after being the provost of Yale, which I'm sure was not easy in and of itself. Um, now you're talking about these amazing technologies that could potentially save the human race from its own problems. So I want to be the first to ask, will you run for president? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, where their skills and abilities are. Uh, it was not, you know, I often say that becoming a scientist was an incredible gift. I truly found my calling in a very deep way. Um, when I was asked to uh, become an academic leader, I questioned whether that was the right path for me, but I certainly um, came to understand uh, that as a call to service. And it was a great privilege to help make Yale a better place uh, and position it better to serve the world. And then to be called to MIT also was um, an incredible privilege and an honor. Uh, I don't believe I'm suited for public office, but you flatter me by um, by suggesting it. Uh, but I'm certainly uh, doing, continuing to do what I can to help us as a nation and as a world understand that there are fantastic opportunities ahead of us if we can grab them. Well, it's certainly been my privilege to have you on Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much, Susan Hockfield. Thank you so much. Indra, I love this interview. Excellent job. I think what I really like about the book is that not only is it wide ranging, so it cuts across uh, physics, natural sciences, as well as the life sciences, uh, health and environmental, and it's, it's, it's really a broad read. But each chapter seemed to me to have a organization of starting at first principles understanding how we what we know about those first principles and then using those first principles in novel ways to create the innovation. So for example, when she talks about in the book um, uh, understanding how cells regulate water, particularly red blood cells, because that is important for their oxygen carrying capacity, the identification of these aquaporin channels, then the insight or the sort of creative leap by scientists saying, hey, we can use these aquaporin channels as potential filters to get clean water for the world's populations. You know, that trajectory was in each chapter. I found that to be really interesting. Obviously, our backgrounds are in the life sciences. So some of these things kind of make 
clear sense to us. But when it comes to novel battery technology, you know, those are things where I'm far less uh, sophisticated. And so to be able to walk me from some of those first principles to now some of these really fantastic and almost, you know, almost science fiction types of projects that are ongoing today at MIT is really exciting. Yeah. And I, I found it really fascinating how she really kind of painted MIT as a place where biology has always been at the forefront, or at least that people who work for MIT have always been at the forefront of biology. Um, and, you know, that's not sort of the, the kind of impression that I had going into the interview. And yet you and I both know, uh, the only, I guess, MIT professor that we both know personally is someone who is making major technological leaps using biology, and that's Ed Boyden. Yeah, and I, I didn't appreciate that history and how some of the earliest incarnations, the foundations of MIT, did have strong biological underpinnings. And of course, that maybe got pushed to the sideline or somewhat marginalized in the early part of the 20th century during the war effort and some of the sort of the industrialization had happened. And I didn't appreciate that. Yeah, I tend to think of MIT as almost pure engineering uh, electrical engineering or um, so, uh, but it, but not, certainly that doesn't characterize it today. It's incredibly strong in biology, neuroscience. Um, if you look at the faculty, it's basically uh, an all-star cast of, um, of, of, of Nobel Prize winners and Lasker Award winners. And so it's really one of our eminent uh, institutions. So having read this book, have listened to the interview, what do you think about this idea that biology is actually going to be building the next technological revolution? I love it. I mean, I love synthetic biology because what she describes is that when you have tools, you can make a lot of interesting things out of those tools. And what we're learning from understanding how we can modulate or control gene expression, we can read, we can write, we can erase, we can do all these incredible editing of genes and then the gene products, those are just giving us tools of a lot of things we can build. Some of it, of course, could be scary, but a lot of it can be uh, incredibly innovative and biologically inspired technology is really at the core of this book. And I find that to be amazing because you know, one source of innovation is just how innovative are humans? Can we create uh, new robots or new technologies that do great things? But what this book is about and what I think a lot of the projects he described at MIT are about the nature-inspired innovations. Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel, let's look to nature who's used billions of years of evolution to solve a specific problem, like moving electrons around for photosynthesis, like Let's try to harness those activities, scale them up, or rework them for something that's going to be really useful for humankind. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awild, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. We could not do this podcast without you. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of the show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan and we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. 
How we see ourselves, each other, and the world is continually shaped by emerging technology. You, a new podcast brought to you by Okta, explores how identity now exists at the intersection of technology and humanity. Each episode features renowned experts in the fields of science, technology, art, philosophy, and design. Search for You by Okta, that's O-K-T-A, wherever you get your podcasts, and start listening today. NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people.